Hello, friends. Do you like Elixir Talk? Are you adopting Elixir at your company? Unwise architectural decisions can sow confusion among your team and add permanent technical debt to an application. Even experienced engineers take time to learn Erlang and Elixir concepts and to understand the tools available to them in the ecosystem. Avoid costly ramp-up time and painful design decisions by hiring us, your Elixir Talk co-hosts Chris and Desmond, for a personalized consultation. We can train your team and help you design a robust system that leverages all of Elixir's strengths. Learn from our years of experience and have fun doing it. For more information, email us at info at elixirtalk.com. That's info at elixirtalk.com. Thanks so much and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Elixir Talk, the podcast where we discuss your questions about Elixir application design and the state of the ecosystem. My name is Desmond Bowie, and I am here with Chris Bell. Hey, Desmond. How's it going today? I'm actually not here with Chris Bell. I wish we were were there together. It would be great. I'm in LA, and Chris is in New York. Yeah. But we're here online and in spirit. Online. And today, uh, we wanted to talk a little bit about... um, uh, mistakes that Rails developers make when they come to Elixir, or I guess anyone who is new to the system uh, trying to build their first Elixir project, um, some of the common pitfalls that they run into, and um, issues that we've seen, and issues that we've had ourselves. And um, the first uh, was gen servers, or putting every putting um, common actions behind a gen server, because people mm-hmm. don't understand that gen servers serialize their uh, their actions. Can you, uh, yeah, can you just speak a bit more about how that, how um, you've seen that structured? So um, you were talking about everything being behind a gen server. So you'd say there's a single gen server to represent a service or something more like that. Exactly. So if you have the concept of here's a login service, here's a user service, here's a uh, mailing service, whatever, mm. uh, that makes sense as a, as a construct like a, as a mental model of how the system should work. And um, gen servers, as generic servers, speak to this client-server uh, design pattern, which is, is pretty cool. But I think you have to th- realize what's going on under the hood with a gen server to understand whether it makes sense to use one of these processes for this purpose, or if what you really want is just a module with a bunch of functions that do the thing. Yeah, I was going to say, it, 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 it sounds like in that example that um, there's some conflation about the idea of a module versus a gen server. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds to me like it's it's very easy to think like oh well the the, the gen server is the, the construct that I need to use to wrap everything around. But I think I think this comes into that idea of like thinking about processes and how your system is designed and what should talk to what and what that message passing looks like between those processes and if like how stateful does something need to be? Like in the, in the example you were talking about there, like um, did they apply any state to that uh, auth, auth or login service? Uh, exactly, and the answer is no. Uh, okay. They would use this gen server to look a user up in the database and return oh, you know, true okay. or false, basically. Yeah. Um, and I said, now what you could do is have a single gen server for each person's logged in state. Yeah, that yeah. that could make sense, um, but that's not what they were doing. And mm-hmm. again, I, I just don't think they understood that under the hood, this process checks its uh, message inbox and goes through the messages serially. 
And so if your concurrent web requests all dump a bunch of things in there, they're going to wait for the one process to bottleneck through to return the answer. I also think it's like sometimes people don't perceive this idea that um, your your web your web server in the in the front there like a cowboy is actually got a pool of processes anyway. So the pr the thing that you're processing is actually in, encapsulated in its own process from the beginning. Mm -hmm. So you're already getting that like parallelism there, and then effectively like when you're talking to a database or something like that you're going through a pool of processes as well so you're already getting this idea that like you know y you get that kind of concurrency from the actual ideas further up the system and you don't have to encapsulate those as like these services wrapped in those processes like that yeah right and i think if you're coming to elixir and you hear all this talk about gen servers and processes you assume that well I need this because that's what mm -hmm. differentiates it from other languages. And I've heard people say, go so far as to say that if you're not using gen servers in your Elixir app, then there's no point in using this ecosystem, which I think is a bit extreme. Um, I think it is fair to say if you're not thinking about your application in terms of supervision trees, uh, in terms of where am I trying to hold state, um, then I just lost my train of thought. But so in that example as well, like they're but they're effectively uh, you were talking about like someone rewriting a Rails app into Elixir, right? So mm -hmm. they already had an existing application. They're applying lots of the same patterns over, um, and I'm guessing what they're thinking is like encapsulating like a class as a gen server. Where yeah, probably. And I, I mean, and you made this point as well. It's like that could make sense if you're thinking about instances as processes, where each instance is a process that contains the state of what it's found. So yeah. in that example, you might have um, a process per user where you have some lookup process that knows how to route to the appropriate process and return data back, right? But there's so much complexity in building your system like that. And for something that's backed by a database, that often doesn't make sense because you're, you're encapsulating and keeping your state somewhere else anyway. Mm -hmm. And then you have a different mechanism to access that state. Um, in this case, SQL, right? And looking up like that. Yeah, and so maybe you're using these processes as a kind of caching layer um, mm. or to hold just truly ephemeral data that is useful in a session, but you don't really want to persist uh, or at least persist in its raw form. Yeah, yeah, and I can see how people walk into this trap, um, especially as you said, like you hear a lot about gen servers and you hear a lot about processes when you're when you're first entering Elixir. Um, and I think it's a very, very valuable exercise to, to kind of draw your process model and think about like, you know, is there a single bottleneck there? Because actually if you start mapping out, if you start like drawing things and then you realize that everything's talking to this like mm -hmm. one process in the middle, you're pretty much guaranteed that you're gonna have a bottleneck. Mm -hmm. Are there, can you think of any code smells around Suppose you write a gen server and you're only doing handle casts or handle calls. Mm. Like, that's probably a smell. Can you think of a pattern like that? Yeah, maybe like um, handle call with no state lookup. Like, mm -hmm. so you're never actually storing state inside of the gen server and you're just basically using it to um, run a bit of code in another process. That could effectively be a smell. Yeah, that's um, a good pattern. Yeah, I wonder if there's any others around that. I, I, I mean, I haven't really walked into that too much myself. Um, and I haven't seen that 
kind of come across. That's certainly a big, a big uh, flag. If you have a gen server that never does anything with its state, mm. um, I mean, I use gen servers for um, background work or sort of ongoing stuff where I need maybe recurrence or something happening elsewhere uh, that I don't necessarily use state for. But that's that's a different use of them than what we're talking about. Right. You're talking about something that maybe you have a process that checks itself every some amount of time or something like that. Exactly. Yeah, I, I mean, even there, like, I often represent some state as just, like, when was the last time you checked or something like that as well. Yeah. You know? So it still has some statefulness associated with the process. Mm -hmm. um, but just to be more concrete there, like, Desmond's example is um, you would have a gen server that starts up and then every n amount of time, so let's say every two seconds, uh, it does a process.send after, checks it, and, and then performs some action, and then enqueues another check after some amount of time as well. So you're effectively using the gen server like some kind of cron scheduler. Exactly, and uh, users do not interact with the gen server. Like mm. a front-end user would not really deal with it during a normal user workflow. The system itself doesn't really talk to the gen server. It's just there to fetch the latest weather in LA and put it somewhere and then then you know users of your front end might gather that data but they don't right. fetch it and they don't talk to the gen server directly yeah I mean I've used a similar pattern when um, we we have a bunch of um, analytics calls mm -hmm. where uh, every call goes to a gen server that basically enqueues a bunch of um, lots of these kind of analytics track requests and we store all of those just in a, a in a queue inside of a gen server and then every n amount of time we just basically pop off that and then send all of the things that were in the queue um, to, to the analytics service in a batch mm -hmm. but we use the gen server to encapsulate this idea of like um, a single queuing instance where we want to just push everything onto that queue as fast as possible and then just return back to the um, whoever was calling it just as quickly as possible as well. But in that instance, everything is a everything is a cast because we don't care about the return result. And if it fails, it's like, yes, we've dropped a bit of data, but it's kind of okay because, you know, it's just analytics tracks and it's not necessarily business critical. So when you pop uh, a bunch of elements off that queue, is that a handle call or is that a, a timed thing that the process does itself? It's a timed thing that then um, then resets the timer and checks if, again after some amount of time. So yeah, but I think in that instance, like if we saw um, if we saw that the single gen server there becomes a bottleneck, so we see a lot of other processes waiting on it to be able to call, um, we could effectively run multiple instances of it mm -hmm. and then have many queues, right? And thinking about it like that, so having lots of queuing processes where we have something that makes a decision about how to load balance across these processes up front and then knows how to enqueue on the relevant um, the relevant like workers um, and then each one of those could be popping off the queue and sending but at the scale that we're dealing with now like that that isn't a problem for us at the moment and if you would want a system with concurrent reads like that then you're probably looking at amnesia yeah yeah potentially or if we didn't care about like I, I see each, um, in, in my head there, each one of those would be an independent kind of process. So there's no need to keep like shared state. Each one could have its own state mm -hmm. and the, the state isn't dependent on each. So they could 
you could effectively think about them as three isolated queues with no kind of shared dependency on each other. I see. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. But, you know, like the other thing there is like what we're doing now doesn't warrant that. But we, we stat the size of the, the queue and the time. Uh, we make sure like the times, um, the call times are recorded. So we know that like if it is getting to be a bottleneck, we can talk about it. But, yeah. And I think knowing when to choose which approach comes from understanding like what is a gen server? How does this stuff work under the hood? And then knowing that these calls are not free, that there are trade-offs there. Um, Definitely. It helps you make there these is, informed decisions. I mean, there are circumstances where actually having something as a single process is a good thing. Yes. Right? Like being able to have something that applies back pressure. So, you know, effectively having a rate limit in your system where you can only do things a certain amount of time. Mm -hmm. And actually, if it fails, you're pushing it back up. Um, so in the, in the case of like, having a web request that then talks to a gen server like you might say that oh actually you know what we can only deal with this many every so often so actually like if it fails we want to push that back up to whoever made the request and we want to report that failure and have them retry at that position mm -hmm. rather than having like a pool of workers or something that um, holds the request and then passes it on and it's all about how I think you want to think about back pressure in the system and where you want to apply that as well yeah, absolutely. And your mileage may vary. I mean, it's mm -hmm. hard for us to come up with other concrete examples about when you would need back pressure. Rate limiting is certainly the first thing that comes to my mind. Yeah, and there's other ways to model that as well. Like gen stage is obviously a good example of like how you might think about um, modeling that kind of back pressure in different ways and having something that asks for some demand rather than just pushing it all up. Uh, yeah, and I've yeah. seen a library whose name I can't recall right now that is like uh, an API rate limiter that's based mm. around gen servers. And you just kind of configure this thing up to say users can only make X number of requests every Y minutes or something. Is that X rated? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> Sorry. I, I mean, I, I kind of applaud that name. I don't know. Yeah, Just, that's cool. Someone had to do it, right? I like I like fun names in libraries. I honestly was really jealous that someone picked X Machina already. Oh yeah, yeah, that is a good one. Yeah, it's a very good library name. Oh, and I saw one the other day that was a feature flagging library called Fun with Flags. Uh -huh. Like after the Big Bang episode. I don't watch the There's Big a, Bang Theory. Uh, that joke was just totally <laughs> lost. Actually, that's very same thing happened on my team where I was like, oh, look at this library. It's called Fun with Flags. And everyone was like, what? <laughs> so On this uh, podcast, Chris, we make Star Trek references. Uh, that's true. That's true. Big Bang Theory. I mean, Will Wheaton is a character on the Big Bang Theory, though. Does he so. play Will Wheaton? He does. That guy, man. That guy. <laughs> Stick to being Wesley Crusher, is that what you're saying? Well, I don't know that I would give anyone that advice. But uh, <laughs> that's a good point. It's always funny like, when people make careers out of being themselves. I think it's... Uh, I, I mean, I'm trying to make a career out of being myself, Desmond. I think that could be a great career, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't uh, need more Chris Bell in their lives? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. So, I guess back to gen servers. Back to gen servers. So... When have you actually used a gen server to model something that, you know, you didn't use a database for, 
or that you felt like was a good use case? A shopping cart. Ah, so you, oh, you did that. You did like an e-com site mm -hmm. and then based it around. Ah, oh, that's cool. Okay, so you had persistent processes to represent someone's cart state. Yeah, so people would browse. Uh, people would browse around the site, and uh, they would have one gen server for um, the session, basically what products that they looked at, and then another that represented what was actually in their shopping cart. That's cool. Yeah, because it's it didn't make sense to persist to a database, particularly if you have a lot of people clicking around the site, browsing around, seeing stuff. Uh, they might not buy something, but this gives you a way to uh, convert that to analytics. Like you really just want a summary of that sort of activity instead of kind of low level things. And then once someone buys something, then shopping cart evaporates. Um, and you can also expire it after a while uh, you just have a lot more flu uh, fluidity um, with how you handle it, and you don't have to worry about constantly serializing your orders or whatever to a database. Uh, so, so did you use like a simple one-for-one -one or something like that and do some name registration with like some tuple where you could look up a cart by an ID or something? Yes. Um, yeah, we would give the name... I mean, the, the, tricky, the tricky part about having a a string um, or about uniquely identifying these um, these processes with like a user ID is you have to make sure that whatever identifier you give it will atomize efficiently and uh, because these things are converted into atoms and so if you're just arbitrarily spinning stuff up and creating new atoms you could conceivably exhaust your uh, atom number in the VM so um, what did we use? I think we, I think we just used like an internal mapping of um, session IDs to uh, PIDs. Okay. Yeah. Did you and did you keep that around in like an X table? Yeah, that like had that? to persist. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. But then we didn't worry so, about persisting um, shopping carts across app restarts. Ah, so if the app went down, everyone loses their cart state and you just force them to start over. Yeah, I mean, the, the patterns we saw were not that people would um, have something in their cart and then come back days later. Okay, so you made you made an explicit decision there to say, like, this data can be ephemeral and it's okay. Yeah, um, we sort of punted on that, honestly. Mm. Um, the thinking was, down the, down the road, it's not that hard to um, swap out or add a more persistent backend here, add some terminate calls, the gen server that persists state, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, but this was an efficient way to get the product, uh, the feature out. Right, and then, so I'm guessing this was on a single instance. Yes. Yeah, that's where it gets a bit trickier, right? Having okay. a distributed state yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like for the for the listeners, you could definitely do it. You could um, have many instances of your server running, connect them together, um, and then have some kind of shared process, so, something shared where you have your um, your registry shared across all the machines, um, and then inside of there, because you can call a process like it's locally on a different machine, mm -hmm. you could be able to effectively like be like node A calling node B to look up a process that's over there in in this instance your shopping cart state right mm -hmm. 
Um, but I mean, that just seems really complicated. <laughs> I don't know. It's like it's like one of those trade-offs. But like, it sounds like you you guys like made that decision because you wanted something nice and simple to get started with. Yeah, it worked pretty well. It was very easy to build and get out the door. Um, mm. And again, traffic patterns were such that a few minutes of downtime here and there was not going to result in gallons of lost revenue. Right. I wonder if, like, I'm just thinking, I wonder uh, if you could just push that state to the client instead. <laughs> just serialize the shopping cart state on the client. You're basically making the same trade-off. Well, then you'd have to version the Yeah, I guess it's true. I guess then the client has a version in them rather than the server. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's... Yeah fine approach i think uh it would have taken longer to get out the door than our solution yeah it's probably true i try to think of like i, I so i i buy that as a use case like i definitely wanted to think about building a whole e-commerce solution thing where you kept every single cart as a as a different process mm -hmm. and you can also do some really cool things like you can hibernate processes so they um so the scheduler knows not to, to check if it needs to do anything, but you can kind of restore it at a later time. Um, and I think it actually like reduces the memory footprint on the process as well. So if you have something like a long-lived cart state that you know someone has an access for three hours, you could hibernate it. And then if when you're looking it up again, you could say, I'll bring that thing back to life. So if a process does not have work to do and it's not marked as uh, active, then it doesn't get enqueued on a scheduler's run queue. So if you have a bunch of processes that are just sleeping, they have nothing in their inbox, the scheduler doesn't even know about them. It's the, the act of sending a message to a process. The sender copies the data into their mailbox and as part of the action, marks the process as active. And that uh, puts it back in the run queue. That's cool. So you don't pay a penalty for having a lot of sleeping processes, a lot of dormant um, shopping carts. I guess it's just memory. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess that's why you do the hibernate thing. But I've never done that. Um, the, the 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 time where I used Gen servers to do something like this was in an app for a food ordering um, lunch. It's like a lunchtime food ordering app that we built. Um, and what we ended up doing is basically modeling out every single store had its own gem server and in underneath that store we kept all of the the like slots for lunchtime ordering and how many like slots were left and we basically modeled all of those as like a caching layer per store um, to keep the lookups really really fast because it was very frequently accessed data um, and what we were able to do is basically build that state of the world from the DB at, if the process died or if it went away or if we started up another node. Mm -hmm. We could always like rehydrate that process from the database. And then we keep it all in an X table that's owned by a gen server. And then it would be able to um, basically be able to know where we would route it because we'd have like, we'd have a very consistent naming pattern of like store one always goes to this process. Um, and, and I think that worked fairly well for that app. It definitely introduced a lot of complexity. Um, I, I think it made it harder for any other developers to kind of jump in because, like, it it, it was no longer just like a simple like look up from the DB and figure out how many slots are available. It used like 
apps and it used gen servers and it used processes and things like that. So it definitely got a bit more complex there. Well, was it um, simpler in the end to reason about? I don't know if it was. And that's, I, that's the part that I keep coming back to in my mind is like, I think it was really cool <laughs> at the time. <laughs> and I, but that's not a good reason. Uh, like, it doesn't know. make me seem like a very pragmatic guy. But um, I, I think that in the end, uh, it allowed us to get some very high performance out of something that wouldn't have been quite so high performance or would have required an additional caching strategy like a memcached or something like that. Um, but then I think I probably could have done a similar thing just from using a bit more of a simplistic caching mechanism probably with um, like one of those caching libraries that goes on top of ETS um, that abstracts away some of the cache for you. Mm -hmm. Whereas we had to build a lot of it ourselves. But then we had like quite complex, like you put like a hold on a time slot for X amount of time and we modeled all of that in like, so basically every time you, you I think you remember, cause I think I talked to you at length about this. But, um, what we did is like every single time you said, I want this time slot, we'd start like a timer running and we'd model it in a process that said that you have a hold on that time slot for some amount of time. And then when that time was up and you hadn't checked out, we'd we'd release that time slot back to the world. Um, and all of that was modeled in processes. And it was like, conceptually, that was really a nice way to think about it, rather than having like locks and other things that need to check and run through everything that was previously locked and unlock it. Like, because each process represented that time slot, it was very, very easy to reason about that. Um, but I think the complexity curve for other developers coming in was quite steep. Mm -hmm. um, and that maybe took away from some of the some of the benefits of doing it that way in the first place. And we also, with that, with that particular solution, we never figured out how to scale it across nodes. Um, we, never, we never had to do that because we ran it all in a single box just for that, like, that order processing management kind of side of things. Um, I think that's okay. I think that uh, it's thinking about how you're going to run this app across a cluster of nodes is premature optimization. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's true. It, I mean, obviously the downside there is like, yeah, it's not going to be a particularly available service, right? Like if it goes away, we have to start up another server and then swap everything over and then get it started back up again. Mm -hmm. um, it would be, but I guess you could mitigate that with like maybe like a shadow copy that was running and then you go to, it's warm all the time and then you switch it over if the, the original one dies. There's probably other ways to do it, but... Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, there's a whole talk about this if anyone's interested that I gave um, a couple of years ago now, I guess, um, called "Selling Food with Elixir," and that mm -hmm. was at ElixirConf 2016. Uh, but it, I mean, I thoroughly enjoyed building it. I was like someone who architected it, so um, it it was it was interesting in my mind. It was and a different way for me to get my head around thinking about building systems. And that was a really good thing. Like it, it got me off on that path of thinking about like, how do you model things in processes and how do you think in this very different way? Um, and trying to avoid those bottlenecks. So like everything was a separate process uh, where it needed to be and, and having different supervision trees and making the, the different decisions about like, if this side fails, it needs to be independent of something else failing mm -hmm. as well. And Elixir really, like, I guess, allowed us to, to conceptualize that 
very easily and kind of model that very easily as well. So that, that was a win, mm -hmm. definitely. Yeah. Did you see any other um, pitfalls of uh, when people are going from like something like a Rails to an Elixir? Any other things that you've noticed? Uh, there's a question about using control flow logic, uh, mm -hmm. a lot of if statements, and um, there's actually a, a question in the in our issues about when to do, when to use things like case versus cond versus if else versus um, yeah. pattern matching on function heads, and right. um, I I think the short answer is you'll end up using case for pretty much everything, <laughs> and sometimes it makes sense to use um, different function heads. I'm I'm a fan of that. Um, I never write if else statements, ever. I will I will case match on true and false. I do the same thing. Yeah, it's once you're used to seeing case statements everywhere, it's much yeah. simpler to just keep using that pattern, and keep that mental model that kind of flow. Um, I see that a lot. People writing sort of complicated control logic instead of trying to break out different chunks of um, of uh, yeah their control flow. And the other big thing that I want to spend a little more time talking about is um, OTP apps and breaking mm -hmm. sort of larger concepts out into their own application when they won't be deployed anywhere different than the rest of the apps. And um, they have a single dependency where they are like they are only dependent on by one other app. And it's an arbitrary line to draw between this service and that service to say, well, this deserves its own its own application, really, with its own configuration files and um, its own module namespace, like top-level namespace, and uh, it adds a lot of overhead. I mean, Elixir makes it easy to transparently call through to these other applications, um, but it ends up making testing difficult, and um, you don't gain anything from having this concept somewhere else. Why do you think it makes testing difficult, though? Uh, if you're trying to set up a test harness for something, like you're usually trying to test, let's say app A depends on app B, and you've placed app B um, as a separate application, and nothing else talks to application B. It's basically a uh, an internal service of A, but you've brought it out into somewhere else. You can test B in isolation, probably, but if you're testing A, then you can't do it without also testing B. So then you end up with... Um, overlap in your tests and um, I'm trying to think of that project we worked on some of the specific examples of 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 this issue because I know where we ran into like when you're factoring up a certain uh, structure in in app a then um, if app B isn't running then it won't work and uh, see I think I think the leaking of um is a really good point. Like you end up testing the implementation of B rather than A, mm -hmm. right? Like you're, um, unless you're like mocking everything, but then like that layer of mocks is like not, you always have to introduce like, if you're using them, and, we've, and we talked about it on a previous episode, if you're using that like um, mock as a noun and not as a verb kind of pattern, um, then you end up like putting another module in between it that acts as your interface between those things. So then you can add a mocking layer into mm -hmm. it, if that makes sense. But now you're adding like another layer of indirection in your service when it sounds like B should never have been an app in the first place. Exactly. It's like, what do you gain 
from moving this out there. Yeah, I mean, I think like in some ways this, like the fact that like shared code in Elixir needs to be an app or it, it's a library, but a library is effectively configured the same way as an application. Yeah. I think sometimes like that makes it difficult to reason about what should be pulled out. Because um, I, I think you end up with like, you end up with library applications that don't have a supervision mm -hmm. tree, or you end up with like actual applications that do have a su supervision tree, and that's the divide for me. Um, but I think like, I, I think just pulling something out because you're you're like, no, I want to push this into another application and and think about it separately and develop on it separately, is not always a smart thing to do. I think if it's configured entirely differently, that might be a different thing. Yeah, or I do this. Uh with my Crevalli products, uh, I've talked about this before, but the Crevalli app is an umbrella app, but each application is an entirely separate product. Um, it would be a different company if uh, you know each thing were like a company's product. So that makes sense to have them as separate applications because they are, uh, they don't share anything. They don't share a database. They don't share users. They don't share, I guess some of them share functionality. And then I can- But you. Yeah, you're just using like a mono repo in that case, right? Yeah, you you want all these things to be together. Exactly. Then it's just a mono repo, and I do get some niceties around um, instrumentation or a sh I can extract shared configurations for uploading S three if I want. But um, I, I I think there's something quite interesting there in thinking about microservices as well, right? Like thinking about like if that thing should be deployed separately and scaled independently, having it as its own app is like a valuable thing to to do. Yes. Um, and like, I, I, I like to think of it like that. Like if, if it is its own service that does need to be run separately and has a different kind of usage pattern or you do need to think about scaling it separately, then by all means break it out. I think if, if it is purely just a private dependency on another application, it should never be extracted out. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like it shouldn't even be anything other than private functions. Yeah, it should just be a module inside your main app. And I think the modules right. are uh, a great and sufficient way of defining boundaries within your application. Yeah, like, definitely. You don't need to go definitely. further than that. Right. And like, yeah, I mean, if they're just modules in an app and you can kind of group them all together, I think that's fine, right? Mm -hmm. And the fact that we get that and you, I guess, I guess like, the problem is, is because you get this like automatic importing as well. Like it kind of means you forget about the dependencies on things sometimes. Mm -hmm. Like uh, I don't love JavaScript all the time, but like I think something that like they move to where you have the, the explicit imports in ES twenty fifteen mm -hmm. was a nice addition to the language because I think it pushed people to realize about the spaghetti they were creating between uh, functions and classes that talk to each other. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I guess we have that to an extent within with mixed dependencies. Well, like because you're ex you're explicitly defining it at the top level. And there's also uh, the mix fref mix xref function uh, task that's true. that shows. Yeah, have, you, have you done that? I haven't. So like, what does the output look like? I don't know. No. <laughs> I don't know. I've never run it before. Uh, for those listening, mix xref is a task that you run from the command line that shows. Um, how your modules depend on each other, so they can find bottlenecks, god modules, um, that sort of thing, and help you sort of tease out 
unnecessary dependencies in your application. That's really cool. I, I need to run that. <laughs> I'd love to run it on one of our bigger apps and see, like, there's, I mean, there are, it's so hard to build systems without God modules at times, right? That's true, but the, I think the problem is not that these modules exist. The problem is that having them frequently makes development harder. And this mm. is, I think, what people were reacting to um, with the whole Rails monolith thing. It's not that monoliths are bad. I mean, I think you and I are sort of converging on keep your Elixir app as a big monolith. Um, the problem becomes when the whole system is uh, complected, to use the technical term. And to make a change to a feature or to rework uh, some functionality, refactor some code, requires an immense um, piece of surgery throughout your application. And I've never had that problem in Elixir apps. Um, I can have modules that talk to each other a lot, but it's always very simple to look at boundaries for responsibilities. It's, it's much simpler to uh, refactor uh, workflow of a data or the shape of an object. So I don't, I don't feel pain around monoliths. And so I just go with, well, it's easier to use these things. And I don't see the downsides of like tossing this stuff in there. Uh, if you, you know, use uh, decent practices, like thinking about your module names. Yeah, that's, that is a good point. Like, the, the encapsulation that modules can give you means that when you are doing one of those bigger refactors, like unless you've overly modularized, um, like the refactor can be sometimes like quite limited to a slice of the system, mm -hmm. right? which is ideally what yeah. you want. Um, and I, yeah, I, th I think that's that's true. Like, I think as long as you encapsulate your modules well, and they still, I still think like kind of single responsibility applies to modules, totally. right? Like, there should be a grab bag of functions that are all related to the same kind of concept. Yeah, or I'll have a sub-module with, like, more specific functions. I mean, I think you have these facilities for grouping things at the appropriate uh, level of, like, their kin to each other. Right, and, that, and, and therefore are... They can be encapsulated in some ways. I think you, like, you do end up having some kind of... So I think about some of our services and things that depend on other modules, but like the dependency doesn't go like that crazy and all over mm -hmm. the place. Like if you mapped it as a tree, it's like, uh, I don't know, it's, it's quite a shallow tree. It's not particularly deep, which means that therefore refactoring is kind of focused around a few different areas. Yeah. And, you know, if you've architected this, uh, this module tree well, then changing something further down does not affect uh, sibling branches. Right. Right, right, exactly, exactly. And that, I think that's about having that good kind of conceptual model about like where different things yeah. live, right? Like, because a module can be lots of things related to each other, like lots of functions, like in the case of a service around like, I don't know, everything to do with your user, mm -hmm. right? But then you might have another module that kind of represents this idea around like, authorization and can this person do this thing or something else right and then you have a, a third one that represents your your schema of that user mm -hmm. as well um so now like your re your refactoring could be like if you're adding a feature or if you're changing a feature like it's largely focused on those those that slice but those things are all related so it's like it's kind of okay right mm -hmm. you're not like going off into the weeds of like some corner of your system to add lots of functionality or something. yeah and um, it's pretty rare to have to be in a corner of your application and then have some random dependency 
uh, elsewhere in your application, which I've certainly seen in larger Rails objects, Rails projects. Right, but, but then this comes back to that point that you said about like keeping, like that's why that thing, like lots of those concepts I just talked about shouldn't be separate applications because they're all related, yeah. right? Like they should not be like split out into the weeds and like, if you're, if you're dividing so finely like that, I think like you're only doing it for vanity reasons to say that this thing is separate and like you actually get the same separation with modules, mm -hmm. right? Like you don't need to go one step further and think like, oh, I need to separate on an application because then I'm, then all my changes are going to be just in this one application because that's never going to be true, right? Right. Like you're often, you're going to be doing a slice, not just this one concern. I think you're, I think you're totally right. And that's the, that's kind of the bottom line here is that when you draw those fine distinctions, um, if your goal is to have like quote clear separation, you get that with good module names um, and you only add uh, downsides in terms of, well, now you have a more complicated dependency tree. Now you have a more complicated application structure. Now you've um, divorced concepts that really should be living together. And it might not be painful when you first do it, but as your project grows, as features get added, you'll find there's, uh, maybe there's crosstalk pressure. Like maybe this concept isn't as isolated as I thought it was. And then now you have to pull the stuff back together. And you, yeah. never, you never won anything from that whole process. Right, right. You could have just kept it together yeah, in the it's first just place all, and you'd probably be in the same boat. It's all boat. pain and no gain. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, it's, de it's, it's definitely something to look out for, I think, in your own applications. Like, see where, where you've put those lines. And, like, I think, like, thinking about pulling apps out where they can be separate services that are deployed independently and scaled independently is, is not a bad rule yes. of thumb. Um, and then for those, I, th I, I think, like, now, now that we have private hex orgs, um, anything that sh might be a shared dependency across applications, it also might make sense to pull it out and put it on hex as well, right? I like, think that's a, I think that's a good rule of thumb. If you say if it's a private dependency, drop it on hex. If it's an application that needs to be deployed separately, that's a separate OTP app. If it's an entirely different product and you want a monorepo pattern, that should be a separate thing. Um, mm. Otherwise, like, it's just one app. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, and I was, I was just thinking about like, when people on my team add features. Like, we, we, um, we have a few different Phoenix apps inside of our mono repo, mm -hmm. I guess, at this point. And, like, when you're adding a feature, like, generally, they're doing it in, like, two places. Like, usually the Phoenix app and then in our, like, core shared business logic that's shared across all mm -hmm. the apps, right? Because, th and that's kind of like how it's structured that um, the Phoenix application is always talking to the core application. Mm -hmm. So therefore a feature has to span across both, but it never leaks into loads of other places as well, yeah. you know? And that, that's, quite a, that's quite a nice sign, I would say, in terms of like, that we might have structured things mm -hmm. well. Um, probably can, I'm sure it can be better and I'm sure if anyone on my team's listening, they're probably like, yeah, it should be better. But, um, have them, have them call know. into the to the podcast. <laughs> yeah, I'm, sh I'm sure you'd love to hear them trash talk me. <laughs> <but>. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I definitely think that's a good rule of thumb, though, thinking about those, those separations and um, trying to use... I, I'm interested to use the shared hex packages um, for some of my more, like, library applications that aren't necessarily uh, 
things with their own supervision mm -hmm. trees. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And hopefully some things you, you can open source. But as we kind of alluded to on the previous episode, like that doesn't always make true. sense. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Cool. Do you have uh, any other any, things? Uh, not really. Can I uh, do a little plug for MPEX NYC? While do it. Tell us about MPEX. <laughs> so, uh, the CFP for MPEX NYC is now closed. Um, so, if you didn't get your talk in, hopefully we'll see you next year. But that doesn't mean that you can't come and join us in NYC. So, uh, the conference is running on May 19th and May 20th here in New York. Uh, May 19th is going to be a training. Um, so we're going to be announcing that very soon. We've got two fantastic trainers. We're actually going to be having um, kind of three different levels of training this year, a beginner one, a more advanced one, and then a nerves training as well. Uh, so there should be something for everyone there. Um, that will be announced pretty soon, along with the prices, and you'll be able to buy your tickets. And then on May 20th, we have the conference itself. Uh, it's hosted at uh, a jazz club here in, here in New York, just off Bleecker Street. Um, it's going to be an excellent day. We already have two keynote speakers announced and all of our early bird tickets are on sale now. Um, they're priced at $1.99 per ticket, so it's an absolute bargain and you get a full day of brilliant Elixir content for that. Who are the keynotes? Um, so the keynotes for this year are Dave Thomas, so Prag Dave, um, and also Brooklyn uh, Zelenka as well. So we've got two fantastic keynotes lined up. Super excited to have both of them there. Um, and we have a ton of proposals for some excellent talks as well. So, When are you going to release the uh, speaker list? So we're picking, so we do like an anonymized selection process for our speakers, uh, and we'll be doing that this week. Uh, so in the next few weeks, hopefully uh, after this episode goes out, after about another week or so, um, th those, those uh, speakers should all be up on the website. Cool. Stay tuned. Yeah, and I hope to see as many people there as possible. Um, and hopefully, Desmond, you are going to come as well. Yeah, I'll make an appearance. Great, and maybe this time we could actually uh, we can record like a little Elixir talk thing there or something. Yeah, that'd be cool. I mean, we grew out of MPEX, and Chris and I both work on the conference, so it only seems fair that we keep mixing the two. Definitely. Definitely. And uh, in the meantime, if you have some Elixir questions or something you'd love to hear us talk about, um, as always, you can open up an issue on our, on our GitHub. That's uh, github.com slash Elixir talk slash Elixir talk. Open up an issue there and hopefully we can get to it in an up and coming episode. Sounds good. Well, thanks, folks, for joining us today. Uh, this has been another awesome episode of Elixir Talk. Yeah. And if you... Um, if you haven't yet rated or reviewed the podcast, be sure to head over to iTunes or somewhere like that, wherever you get your podcast today, and give us a review. That would massively help. And send, uh, if you have any other feedback about this episode or any other, make sure you get in touch with us. Yeah, hook us up on Twitter um, or find us through our emails. Great. Well, everyone, enjoy the rest of your day, and we will see you next time at Elixir Talk. Cool. And keep Elixir. Keep Elixir in. <laughs>